Ruminations discussion for Parsha Truma. What an exciting week. We are talking about the Mishkan and all things amazing, as usual, but even more amazing today because Shlomo and I are going to go back and forth and let's get some insights. And this will be going up on my podcast, Ruminations from Pardes along with my very special guest, Emet Collins, a.k.a. Shomerman. Nice. So where are we starting today? Okay, I guess an, an overview of the illumination is always helpful. And this week's Parsha is Taruma. Legalism is what closet legalists accuse everyone else of. I think it's important to define the word legalism in a Torah context. What constitutes legalism? What is it about this word that evokes some believers to say that those who keep the Torah are being legalistic? Hmm. This is, is there a, even a word in uh, Ivrit for legalism? I most certainly will look. Because I know we have things like uh, Machmir, which is being stringent. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think I've, at least I haven't. I mean, it's not like I know Hebrew, like like a codex, but uh, I haven't seen a word for a person who's considered a legalist uh, as far as the Hebrew terminology. Kuchiot. Kuchiot? Mm -hmm. That is spelled et, vav, kuf, yud, vav, tav. Obviously, the first three letters, Hulk, decree. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, so like uh, Hukat. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that that would be the word for legalism. How do you spell it one more time? Het, Vav, Huth, Yud, Vav. So this is interesting because it has to do with uh, digging out, making a perforation, Mostly, God, that's Chaver or Chavar, Chetvav uh, Resh, which is another way to say Chur, uh, the uh, the person who was standing with Moshe Rabbeinu and Aharon during the Battle of Amalek. Amalek. So Chur is also Chavar, 
which means to be transparent, white, or clear. That's interesting. Anyway, that's not the word we're looking at. We're looking at hukika and huka and haka and hok. So, okay. So the the Ivrit basically is pointing to the fact that this is something that's engraved in your heart or engraved in your observance that it's like it's deep it's a dugout spot if you will that makes it very uh interesting that if we're talking stringent or i mean if we're talking legalism then we're talking like what's really etched there The definition for this word, excessive adherence to law or formula. Ha, huh. you know what? This is uh, the insight from Parsha uh, Bechukotai, where uh, it is said that these are, or if you will walk in my commandments. And like this, this like repetitive, like constant, like keep going, keep going, keep doing, keep reviewing, keep reviewing, keep repeating. Hence the whole, you know, like if you're chiseling something, it's like you keep hammering away at it, you know, and it gets like down in there. So. Hmm. Maybe it's not so bad to be a legalist, huh? <laughs> but as you. uh beautifully ruminated earlier this week uh it's not as you think and if you're cheapening because i like that word i think you mentioned that or at least uh you spoke to the effect of if someone is going to focus on being a legalist then they're missing the point of why we're even in a relationship with the shem in the first place like it has nothing to do with the fact that you have these obligations and it's like, if you don't fulfill these obligations, then we're done. It's like it we're, we're in a love connection here and it has, it, it goes beyond that. Cause like, if you love someone, you're not going to spend your time trying to overly appease them in ways that are not necessary. And also in ways that cheapen the love. So but anyway, I mean, yeah, that, that, excellent points. You know, beautiful. Um, given the context of this parsha, part of the narrative that we come to is the Mishkan, where Moshe is given instructions on how to build the Mishkan, and after the pattern that's shown to him on Sinai. Um, one of the main purposes of the Mishkan is to restore our ability to fellowship with Hashem. But many in Christianity think that all the offerings are a legalistic thing when it comes to because they use the word sacrifice which mm -hmm. is the wrong word. It does not effectively or effectually describe the offerings that are brought 
and the purpose of them. Correct. The purpose of the offerings is so that the person bringing the offering along with themselves can have fellowship with Hashem, can approach Him, because Hashem is repelled by sin. Anything that's in opposition to His will is it's like trying to get to like poles of a magnet trying to come in contact with they just repel each other right apparently if you stick them in a rock like there's something with a stone that you do with things that repel each other that reverses the poles and causes them to be attracted hmm. you heard of this something in the rock um, maybe um a metal that can be magnetized, changing yeah. the magnet's polarity. Well, you know, um, thinking of this is because the whole foundation stone and being living stones built up into a spiritual temple, Yosef being known as Evan Yisrael, because, you know, the the stone that was uh, exalted and we call grace, grace to it, and how mm -hmm. um, there's a whole thing about Yosef having the uh, the support or being the support for his family when they were in Mitzrayim. And so through Yosef, in other words, like this aspect of the stone and making opposites attract kind of thing. Yeah. The thing about the Mishkan is it's central to this partial along with the priesthood. Mm -hmm. and both are by eternal decree but as we see in Christianity they think it's um, a dispensation but again this goes right back to rumination too is grace unmerited favor you know when does this word first appear Um, I was looking at some of my posts or my feed on Facebook and I noticed that someone had posted something related to this. And, and you know, and you see the typical answers from dispensationalists. They say, you know, that was the time of the, the law. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not under the law. And so I asked this person the question, so then when does the word grace first appear in Scripture? Man, I have yet to get an answer back. So, <laughs> scripture uh, being the Tanakh, <laughs> uh, you know. But this is the thing, you know. It's meant, you know. I want to get this person thinking about scripture. I want this person to search the scripture. I don't want them to look dogmatically to theology for the answer because it's Ooh. not cut and dry. True. Uh, I had me and my Hubuta were speaking about this uh, last week, and once a person gets an idea, uh, yeah, we brought this up in our last discussion. That once people start getting into this box, thinking, "Oh, okay, I've settled this. This one single person settles it," and then all of a sudden you have a dog. And so, effectually, they have the horse blinders on. They can't expand their thinking. They don't. They can or won't expand their thinking on this one point. Hmm. 
But as our master said, search the scriptures for in them you find that they testify of me. But also in John 5, where he clearly states that if you don't believe what Moshe has told you, how will you believe what I say to you? Right. Um, a good connection in the Torah for those verses in John 5 is uh, Numbers 12. You know, people who were not afraid to speak against Moshe, the incident with Miriam and Aharon, where Miriam was put outside the camp for seven days because of evil speech. Right. Um, but the other thing that you know, uh, believers tend to point the legalistic finger at is the rabbis, of course. The anti-rabbinical attitude. They think all oh, these rabbis are just making it up as they go along. and which is <laughs> legalistic. It's traditions of men. We don't want traditions of men. And I would say, kind of turn the argument on its head, and I would say, oh, aren't you listening to your pastor who has listened to theologians who teachers in the seminary or the Bible college that they went to. Right. You got to learn from somebody, right? Yes. You know, and it's, you know, and it's all part of Jewish hermeneutics. Um, I have a but, tag when you have a moment. Yeah. Um, the thing about it is, is that uh, the rabbis were doing this long before, you know, Christianity was made into a religion by a Roman Caesar in the fourth century. So <laughs> it sounded like an old screw drop. Man, back in my day, I was doing this before you was even in diapers. <laughs> no, but I mean the point well taken though. I mean it's true. Uh the the tag I had was from some aspects of rabbinic theology. Um, if you think rabbinics and theology is contradictory, that's because it is. And this book is chocked full of, while you may think there should be something along the lines of theology, because we have an oral Torah, we have an oral tradition, we don't really do theologies and dogmas and all of that. However, uh, this statement here is something that I love. It says, this is in the preface, says, notwithstanding, however, all these uh, excrescences, which historic events contributed towards certain beliefs and the necessary mutations and changes of aspects involved in them, it should be noted that rabbinic literature is, as far as doctrine and dogma are concerned, more distinguished by the consensus of opinion than by its dissensions. On the whole, it may be safely or it may safely be maintained that there is little in the dogmatic teachings of the native to Israel authorities of the first and second centuries to which, for instance, Rob Ashi of the 5th and even Rav Sharira of the 10th century, both leaders of rabbinic opinion in Babylon, hence where we get the Talmud Babli, 
Uh, it says would have refused their consent, though the emphasis put on one or the other doctrine may have deferred widely as a result of change conditions and surroundings. A careful study of the agotic sayings, for instance, of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Meir of the second century will sufficiently prove that there is little or nothing in the dicta of these great teachers which would have prevented them from subscribing to the same general theological beliefs that inspired homilies contained in the Seder, Eliyahu, and Agadat Bereshit compiled in the seventh or eighth century, if not much later. So that's a long verbose way of saying that if you really look at the teachings of Torah, it doesn't drive a person to create theologies or dogmas. It's really about what what is the consensus of opinion brought down in schools of thought. And this is something that I love about when we, especially when we discuss on the ruminations and when we're in our Zoom groups, that everyone's coming with this commentary, this commentary, this commentary. And as you say, this is not anything that I've thought up. You know, this is not my personal bias. This is what the sages say. And when a person is in that spot, it's really hard to have a theology or a dogma to drive you into something because you understand this is a teacher-student tradition handed down. And I mean, what what is that? <laughs> you know, so when we talk about legalism, it's just, it's really kind of like, it's left field at best, at least in my thinking, because it's just kind of like, that's not how we roll around here. But as they say, I digress. <laughs> but I just, oh, go ahead. I was looking in um, a commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and the Midrash on Matthew 5.17. Strachan Billerbeck. By Strachan Billerbeck. <laughs> uh, in Moab Katan 16b, what does 2 Samuel 23.3 mean? Rav Abahu, circa 300 CE, said, this is what is meant. The God of Israel said to me, spoken by the rock of Israel, I rule over human beings who rules human beings who rules over me. What was that? That last line? This is in Moekutan. Mm-hmm. Something about ruling over me. Yeah, this is what is meant. The God of Israel said to me. Rabbi Ababu. Yes. By the rock of Israel. I rule over human beings. Who rules over me? Right. The righteous, for I make a decision, and he or she, the righteous, overturns it. Okay. In the Jerusalem Talmud, Talani 367a, does not God overturn? 
me batel his decision because of a righteous person. Rabban Gamliel, circa 90 CE, answered, Yes, God overturns his decision because of a righteous person, but God does not overturn the decision of a righteous person because of the decision of another righteous person. Wow. Now, it can be argued or postulated that because Christianity thinks that the Torah is done away with, and you and I both know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he does not change. Amen. That these statements by the rabbis, Abahu and Gamliel, are speaking of a righteous person, one who is living according to the precepts of the Torah. So if you are not living by the precepts of the Torah, do not expect God to overturn anything for you. Goodness. Wow. Because this definitely falls in line with another statement by our master, which is in complete agreement with what I just read here. You know, you know, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Right. Only those who do the will of my father. Uh, John 5.39, I'm coming in my father's name, but you do not receive me. If someone else comes in his own name, whom you will receive. And we know that the Father is the Torah. Um, the, the will or the Sephira of Keter, the first of the ten Sephira. The other misinterpretation is the word fulfill. Bring to fulfillment. You'll see the frequent expression in Matthew, so that what was written or what was said would be fulfilled. Um, a good cross-reference is Luke, how Mary and Joseph fulfilled what was written concerning uh, bringing their son, right. their first son, to uh, to be circumcised on the eighth day, to be included in the covenant, and to be bound by the Torah at the appropriate age, bar mitzvah age of uh, 13 for young boys. Um, but fulfilled in the context that in obedience to because Messiah said this, he, he he came to live in obedience to the Torah, and that we should be careful not to even let it enter our thinking that the Torah has been annulled in any way. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words won't. Mm. In Matthew 5.17, however, the fulfillment of an absolute way, a fulfillment which as the following interpretation of individual commandments or mitzvot shows 
is not to be found in the literal sense of the word. The following interpretation of individual commandments shows that it does not come to fruition in the literal execution of the law, but brings the law to realization according to the whole depth of its ethical content. So the first paragraph of, this, of the rumination, Christianity has long accused Judaism of holding to a works-based works salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. When love, this is important, when love inspires obedience, how could it be called legalism? And how will people know if we love God or not? Mm -hmm. And how will we know him? How will people know that we know him? It's you know, a caution that we should be careful not to over-spiritualize this because there is a literal sense and then there's the spiritual sense. The two have to be in balance. Uh, Mishle 11.1, a false balance is totally is detestable to Adonai, but a just weight is his delight. Now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. That's First John 2.3. And he who has my mitzvot and keeps them uh, the Hebrew word shomer, to guard, the treasure, is one power. Um, shomer mitzvah, I believe the phrase is, mm -hmm. one who guards the commandments. It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And that's John 14, 21. I'll just tell you, I have a personal uh, testimony that when I used to uh, be a Christian, I was uh, helping out with a basically like a uh, like a community type of event where um, they work with uh, families, specifically young girls to uh, help them work on self-esteem and how they present themselves, uh, public speaking, how to be modest, etiquette, all these kinds of things. And um, the organizer of this uh, organization wanted me to, uh, you know, do music and all sorts of things, like whatever I would be interested in doing to invest in every, everything like that. So I decided I want to be a DJ. And they're like, great, we need music. So please play as much music as you possibly can to make sure we got good energy in the room and that there's no dead space. You know, we don't want to hear silence at an event. And I'm like, okay, I got this. So I'm like playing all this music. It's all like super neutral, poppy, you know, cause it's a, it's a kid's events, family thing. Someone told me, 
like after the event, there's like, oh my gosh, are you a are you a believer? And I was like, yes. They're like, oh, okay, because I totally couldn't tell like whether you were or not. And I'm like, okay, so this one time I'm not easily identified as a believer because dot dot dot. And I like I was left with that question in my mind. Obviously, as a Jew <laughs> who is observant and, uh, you know, we have a way of life, the way we look, the way we talk, the way we eat, the way we observe the calendar, like all the above. It's no way to miss it. You know, it's like, OK, so you're obviously different. But over there, it wasn't. Like, and that, that kind of broke my heart when it was just kind of like, you really have to have a conversation with me to know whether or not I believe in Hashem. Okay. So just to your point there, like when, when we just have this belief, but it doesn't show any fruits on the outside, it's just left in the spirit world. That was sad for me. I don't know how other people feel about it, but. No, I, I can attest to that myself. I mean, you know, having been in Pentecostalism for thirty years, you know, since my twenties, back in the eighties, um, all I ever heard was, "Oh, you don't need to do that stuff." That that's all I have. You know, Jesus fulfilled the law, and. Well, what does that even mean? Right. If you told me I had to get baptized in Jesus' name, I did that. That's a word. That's an outward expression of faith. It's a public declaration in the presence of every congregant who was there. I even got a certificate. Signed so off by the pastor, proving that I was obedient. Outwardly expressed. <laughs> wow. And um, and as I started going down, you know, I know there's more I have to do. But you know, they weren't just simply telling me, you know, all you gotta do is walk with Jesus, and you went to the altar, you gave your heart to Him. You know, He's in your heart. And I'm like, well, what does that even mean? What are my responsibilities as a believer? You know? So in a relationship, if a person does not have responsibilities, what kind of relationship is that? And what happens to the person who doesn't have responsibilities? I mean, I'm all, you know, one one thing aspect about the Torah, we always need, I think we always need to be reminded of is that it is the revelation of his righteousness and holiness. Those two primary aspects. And he has given us his instructions. After all, we are the created. He is the creator. He fashioned us. He molded us. We're in his image. And what does that speak when we do not or walk? According to the instructions, I mean, would you buy a car without the manual and how to use it or a computer or a VCR or 
a TV. Hmm. You know, when like uh, when you order something, a lot of companies include a packing slip, so you know what's in it. You know, that's just another way of looking at the Torah. It's like a packing slip. This is it. This is you. This is the blueprint. <laughs> the instructions you need to follow. That would be common sense. But, you know, they just decided, well, we know better. It's like you're saying that you know better than God how to live. You're, in effect, you're telling him, oh, we don't need to live by your Torah. Your revealed will. That that flaunts rebellion right there. That's intense. You know, when you are so loath to obey Hashem and you make up one excuse after another, you just flaunt your rebellion in front of him. And what do you expect him to do? How, how do you expect him to respond knowing that, okay, you want a relationship with the maker of heaven and earth, and yet you don't want to follow his instructions. And our loving instructions, we know that. He cares for us. You know, mercy for the person who turns from his sin and grace for the person who is striving to live according to his precepts, his instructions. Um it just it really does boil down this the common sense. You know, I, I'm just it, it's amazing to me all the time. You know, every time we come to these ruminations in and and safer Shemot and we deal with these issues and to help people to realize that the importance of not leaning on the understanding of another man, but rather the revealed will of Hashem and learning to simply say yes because not everything is explained. Mm -hmm. Because in the previous Parsha, we learned that Israel said, we will do before they even heard a single word. Not a saving Shema. Very true. Because understanding does not come through knowledge. Understanding comes through obedience and, and performance of mitzvah. Um, Devarim 6.25, it will be righteousness for you if you are careful to obey everything that I have commanded you today. Um, Good understanding to its practitioners. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're talking about? Or like a doctor who, what does he do? He's a practitioner of, med of medicine. He's practicing medicine. Yeah, he has a degree. He went to medical school, but ultimately he's striving to be a better doctor every day by doing and not by just simply saying, oh, I believe I'm a good doctor. It's crazy how we can put it in different contexts and analogies and it just becomes blaringly Tragic. Yeah. <laughs> or I'll use myself as an example. I used to work for a uh, a computer manufacturer back in the late 90s, early 2000s. 
what I started out doing was assembling PCs, and as time progressed and I and I became proficient, I moved over to the quality control department, and eventually I became a department head because I demonstrated proficiency in what I was doing. Not because you believed in what you were doing. <laughs> of course, I had someone else to show me. But after a while, the learning curve starts to level off and you start to demonstrate proficiency. It's the, it's the same thing with the Torah. We become more proficient every single time we do the mitzvah. And we gain a deeper understanding because what happens is we start making connections to other mitzvah. And we begin to understand the mind of Hashem, even if it's a small part. Uh, it's like Shaul says in Ephesians, who can know the height, the breadth, and the depth of his wisdom? You know, the performance of each mitzvah, mitzvah gives us a, a piece of a puzzle. You know, and we says, okay, this goes here, that one goes there, and we start to get it slowly over the lifetime, get the big picture. Although it's not complete, I'm, you know, uh, I get you. I, I think it's really cool that the Siddur already tells us this because it's the second thing we say in the morning. Like right after the Modani, we talk about the, the beginning of uh, wisdom is the fear of Hashem and a good understanding comes to its practitioners. Like that's like so already like ingrained in the order of how we live it's just kind of like okay now that you've thanked Hashem for giving you life let's talk about how we can become wiser let's talk about what fearing Hashem is and then let's talk about how practicing this gives you a good understanding <laughs> I mean waking up like that bro really that's like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm up now. I'm going to go ahead and go, you know, extreme sports, like zero to 100 real quick. <laughs> uh, like you're going to step in the ring with the current champion, cha uh, heavyweight champion. Uh, I know. Rolling out of bed. You're going to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy? He's going to knock you out in the first round, and that's it. It's a done deal. What did you put this guy in the ring with me for? This is nothing. So now the alarm clock needs to be the uh, the boxing bell. Ding, ding. <laughs> you wake up in the morning. That is so funny because I was watching the Rocky movies last week. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> I don't know if those movies or not, but in, in the third one, he faces off against uh, Clubber Lang, who's played by Mr. T. Mm -hmm. You know, Mr. Dude's go, come on, Balboa, I got some more for you, you know, like, right? But the thing about it is, Balboa wasn't in his right mind. Why? Because Mickey, his manager, his trainer, died before he went out to the fight. So, how can you, how can someone like Clubber say, oh, you, you won fair and square when his head, Rocky's head, wasn't even in the ring? And it took Apollo Creed to come along and get him all straightened out. Someone else to help him. Hmm. And he taught him some new techniques. The very techniques that 
he fought Balboa with in the second movie, you know, and I thought that was great. And they became really close friends, you know. It's interesting how an opponent becomes your closest friend, you know. I, I really like the aspect of those two movies, you know. It really made an impression, you know. I mean. Because Apollo showed how he, he really cared about Balboa, you know. That he wanted to be there for him, you know, because he didn't, he lost for the wrong. You froze. You froze up about on the lost part. Um, in other words, you know, Rocky wasn't fighting boxing to his potential. Oh, right. Apollo helped him regain his confidence, overcome his fear, and achieve his potential, and he won back the title. All through befriending an opponent. Yeah. Well, I, I will just read this real quick because when we talk about the fact of um, all these analogies about how we would think, you know, just don't do anything, just you have your belief, you know, you don't have to walk it out. You don't have to have this outward expression. Well, in Proverbs 28, verse 9, it says this, if one turns aside his ear from hearing the Torah, his prayer too will be considered an abomination. Prayer is not merely a petition for one's needs. Rather, it is a it is a means of spiritual growth and bonding with the create dude. Come on. Growth and bonding is prayer. So the main thing that would cause you to get closer to Hashem that is now going to become like unfit and just disgusting because you don't want to express the love that you have for Hashem. In other words, the love expressed is the doing of the mitzvot. It's the hearing of Hashem's Torah going, okay, maybe I don't get it now, but I'm going to keep coming back and listening and putting it into, uh, putting it into practice. Yep. Wow. That's a that's a pursuit I know very well. Um, <laughs> May we all know it very well because that is crucial. Did you just hear that? <laughs> you know what? I am reminded of Hebrews. For you have tasted of the heavenly gift. And then you turn around and trample upon the blood of the covenant of the sun. How, what kind of punishment do you suppose would be brought upon such an individual? Um, you know, you're recording the other pursuit in, in uh, Proverbs, you know, the fear of Hashem is the beginning of wisdom. The Hebrew word is yure. And it's not like the Hebrew word makad, which is a straight up fear of all like you're afraid of the bully in the schoolyard, you know. <laughs> but rather, it's a reverential fear, a, a, a healthy respect 
what someone else this is part of being in relationship i think one of the hardest things for us guys to do is when our wife has something important to tell us that we really got to sit down and listen give our undivided attention Without much more should be, how much more should it be Hashem and his Torah, you know? Yeah. I mean, the entire nation stood there at Sinai and they heard. This is not some private revelation that so many others have done. Like Joseph Smith of the Mormon religion, for example. Um, there's others, you know, but that's the first example that comes to my mind only because my wife has mentioned it to me several times because she um, took uh, religions and world religions when she went to uh, North Central here in the Twin Cities where we live. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, belief has to be something more upstairs. It has to be Acted upon. Um, Love it's it. not the it's not the hearers of Torah only that will be justified. It's the doers. But if you if you're not a doer, then you're a judge, and you're a judge of the law. And if you are guilty in one thing, then you are guilty in in whole. That's hmm. what James writes in his letter. Hmm. And that and that it's a nice little segue into this next part. Uh, legalism does not spring from the Torah. This is a very important distinction. I always strive to make, but rather an attitude about the Torah. When one is motivated by love, no rule, no law is treated in a legalistic way. So that's a very important dichotomy. So what's interesting about all of this as we're talking and going back and forth is that we looked up the word for legalism. And this whole time we're talking about how you have to use the concept of the definition of legalism in order for you to really express your love for Hashem and to move beyond just saying you believe in something and then not doing anything about it. In other words, you, we looked up legalism and it means like to constantly be at something and doing it and like this active motion. Right. But then it's just kind of like, but if you really want to be proficient in loving Hashem, like you have to have this element of, a constant practice, uh, a constant application and applying yourself to the mitzvot. And so it's like, is it legalism or is it not? You know, and it's just kind of like, well, I mean, the concept of what it means to be a legalist, but it's not connected to, in a, what is it? The end, the, the means justifying the end or whatever. Like that whole... Practice like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Well, oh, the ends justifies the mean speech. Yeah, because the means are 
to get to the end is that you need to do the mitzvot if you're really expressing your love for Hashem, like really walking this out. Like, in other words, we wouldn't we wouldn't have had Parsha Truma if we didn't have this connection and dwelling with Hashem. Like, we would not have put forth any effort to give, any effort to acquire Hashem's presence in our life because we wouldn't have uh, we wouldn't have invested anything. However, it's not the investment, it's not the pursuit of Hashem that we're really using as the end. The end is the connection to Hashem. The means is the investment, the practicing, the and the doing. So if a person is legalist, they're caught up in the means as opposed to the end. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Um, Does that make sense? What, what, what is the goal? of observance yeah this would be the end of the means right meaning that messiah and i'm quoting the cjb is oh that's cool oh wow yeah sorry i cut that off okay but you said <laughs> is the end yeah the goal not the yeah it says he's the goal of the torah but for us, that is our goal. The other thing about this is now tradition comes into play. Tradition brings context to observance. Meaning... The halakha that the rabbis bring down in the Gemara and in the Talmud on certain issues, you know, how we walk out the commandments. Uh, the root for that word is holak, to walk. Mm -hmm. You know, and Noah walked with Hashem. He was righteous in all his generations and he was a righteous man because he walked with Hashem there was an outward expression of an inward and imperishable faith and this was before even the Torah was given mm-hmm but the other thing about this is they were aware of Shabbat, too. <laughs> yeah. Because, you see, that's another thing that they, oh, we don't have to, you know, oh, we're on Sunday because, you know, Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. You know, there's that, you know, but stuff they think, you know, Shabbat observance is legalism. But explain to me that at the end of creation, that he blessed and sanctified the seventh day, and he placed Adam into the garden on Shabbat, along with Eve. How is that legal? Well, this is something that Hashem himself. Are you really going to tell God that, that hey, that's legalistic. You, you can't do that. 
Bro, I'm yeah, saying this... you said that a while back. I was just like, my goodness, like if we reject the Torah, it's us telling Hashem, we know better. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> it's what I read here from this commentary. I rule over human beings. Man. Who rules over me? The other thing, the other thing about this is that I just remembered about what the uh, uh, Parashah Bo that he handed over a Zadik to the Satan so that he would stop uh, prosecuting the B'nai Israel at, at the Red Sea. <laughs> but this was being a connected media because I owe Council Pharaoh to strip the Jewish people of their wealth and enslave them. And Job, the Zadik that he was, he had to suffer for that to bring atonement. Suffering to bring atonement. The other thing about it is that the Jewish people got all of the goods, all the treasure from the Egyptians. Um, the Rabbi over Rabbi Foreman over at Aleph Betis, uh, I watched a video of his on this, and he pointed out that, and I think it's in the Midrash, that the Egyptians actually handed over their treasure without them having to ask for it. Love it. So here you go. It's yours now. You know, this is you know, is what was stolen from them. Wow, they're giving back what they stole. Along is super kabbalistic for what's happening as we finish exile. The Citra Akra has to give up the light that it stole. Oh my god. Energy from the Klippa to Kedusha. Did you hear about this? The Vatican is releasing documents from the Holocaust era or yeah, the Holocaust era. Really? That's hugely self-incriminating, right? <laughs> But I just see that as one aspect of like, dude, so much light is coming back into the world now because this is the end and the Citra Akra has to give up those sparks that it just it took and it wasn't supposed to have them. <laughs> so here here comes the Vatican sitting on documents from the I mean, this is just one how, who, how know, who knows how many eras of worth of information they have, right? But if we just go back to just the Holocaust, there were pleas to the Vatican. Could you please get us out of here? Help us so that we can escape the tortures, the get our families out of the death camps, all this kind of stuff. Document after document, thousands. And it's now about to be released to the public. And people are going to be able to see, like, oh, so the Vatican was in cahoots with you-know-who <laughs> to allow millions of people to be murdered. You know what's another thing about that is? Yikes. <laughs> Some I heard something else, that they're 
possession of uh, Talmudic scrolls that have not been seen since Talmudic volumes were burned at the hands of the church that is in their possession. And I mean, there's that never been seen before. Uh, Kabbalistic text. I mean, the Vatican, they're, they're hoarders, man. They, they've, they don't want this stuff to get out, but what did our master say? That which is hidden will be. Oh no, you didn't. You did not just do that. No one puts a light under a bushel. They put it on a lampstand. And so it can be seen. And then we have the sparks from Shevi uh, Kalim, the shattering of the vessels. Which got stolen, and now those are getting brought back. Back together. Oh. What about the signs that we're in, man? Like the fact that all the stuff that got stolen is getting brought back. Are you serious right now? So it's only a matter of time. This is me because I'm like a resurrection fanatic almost. Like I'm not a fanatic about it, but it's kind of cool. You have to admit. Um, no, it is. <laughs> death? I'm always reminded about the Ari when he said yeah. after Miraculeen that now this world is the world of rectification. This humongous work from Streck is one of those things. Yeah, I'm, when you said that, that just like that. This was is a, a huge cocoon, as far as I'm concerned. This is monumental in scope. Just a this, little this piece of what this right here affirms what you just said. Yeah. About it's, the Vatican releasing documents concerning the Holocaust. You know what? Those deniers are going to have a hard time. Yep. So I was going to say that, you know, death has taken souls from people's bodies. Oh, death, where is thy sting? You know, those kinds of things. Like, that's going to happen. Like, where those souls get returned. Uh, that always amazes me. Um you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm reading this, um, the month of Adar from uh, Rob Dover Pinson. Pinson. May he live and be well. Got some urine drops that are just going to blow your mind. <laughs> I mean, this is what he says regarding Purim. Purim is the culmination of receiving the Torah. Originally at Mount Sinai, Palal Yisrael was forced to accept the Torah. The mountain suspended overhead is a metaphor for an overwhelming encounter with the divine that compelled them to simply surrender their free choice and passively accept what was being given. As the Manharal explains, Gur Aryeh Shemot 1917, during the event to Purim, however, we willingly accepted the Torah with love. Tosafos from Shabos rather than out of fear. Mm. This completed and crowned the process that began at Sinai, but we could only fully and unanimously accept the Torah through our own free will, our own volition. 
and not under duress or external imposition from above. In fact, we accepted the Torah so internally that we even accepted our own experience as described in the Megillah as part of the Torah, and therefore welcomed Purim as a Yom Tov. What was originally given from above was now fully internalized below. Our own experience was thus divinized. What prompted Wait, wait, wait. Stop. Time out. Our, our own experience was thus what? Divinized. Seriously? That's the word we're going to go with? Okay. I just wanted to make sure that's what you said, because I was like, yeah. wait a minute. Divinized. Okay. Wow. That's, that's huge, man. It is. Worms in the Torah. Divinized. Okay. Please continue. Okay, so this is, I, I really like this next part. This is really good. It fits in with the rumination so well. It's like hand, glove in hand. What prompted Kalal Yisrael to actively choose to accept the Torah, which they had originally accepted their pressure from above? Writes the Orkhaim. About 19.5, this they did because for the first time they realized that the Torah scholar, such as Mordecai, were responsible for their salvation from the decree of Haman. In other words, they recognized the Koach of the sages, the Koach of the Torah Shemopay, the full potential of humanity and the ultimate role of creation Below. Durham is thus the beginning of the revealing of Torah Shabbat Pei, and it completes not only the process of Matan Torah, it completes anyway the Torah Shabbat Pei. Numerical value 611. The word Baal is numerically 187. The word Bekatav in writing is numerically 424. Adding Baal Pei to Bekasav 420 produces a sum of 611 Torah. This shows that the entirety of the Torah is only complete when there is full revealing of the written dimension and the oral dimension of the Torah, a marriage of above with below, a dialogue between heaven and earth, arousal from below. Wow. This is a really mystical um, but Israel. Well, remember Hanukkah? Hanukkah is the culmination of Sukkot. And now we have Purim is the culmination of Shavuot. Well, all right then. Well, oh. what's interesting is what Adar is to the final month of winter is what Elul is to the final month of summer. Wow. <laughs> 
Good night. So, I mean, this so, month, a lot like Shabbat, which just ended, is a transitional month. Mm -hmm. Shabbat, we get an inkling of the transition, but this month, there's more of an awareness. We're, we're more sensitive. My wife and I like to say, is it springtime yet? <laughs> you know, she's like, she wants spring to come so bad. <laughs> so I'm, I'm stuck on uh, divine eyes, by the way. I mean, this is so good. Torah Shabbat begins to percolate during this transitional historic era, specifically outside of Eretz Israel. It is perhaps for this reason that Megillah Esther 817 tells us uh, Mate uh, Hadim, Bey Rabim, and many of the peoples of the land became Jews. Rashi Adol, Torah Shabbat, therefore has a special connection with Gerim, Converts, Prizadi Gitro. Converts represent the below, that which is outside but through choice enters inside. One who experiences darkness, doubts, and toil, yet rises through their own efforts to attach themselves to the above. In this way, the first translation of the Torah, a form of Torah Shebaal Pei, as it is interpreted, an interpretive translation was created by Ankelos, the convert. Also, Rabbi Akiva, the abandonment of Torah Shebaal Pei, was the child of converts, Rambam Hakdaman Le Mishnah Torah. You just said that converts are associated with the oral Torah. Mm -hmm. This is don't bear pencil, man. This is I'm reading verbatim. <laughs> What's crazy about that is the whole like rejection. Like there can't be anything besides the Torah that's added to the Word of God, and da 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 da. It's like okay, so you've identified yourself as not a proselyte. Thank you so much. <laughs> you can't claim attachment. Yeah. I mean, which is totally fine to a certain extent, because and I always now that I'm uh, understanding more about this, it, it kind of sounds like Noahidism, but it's not that there is a level of people who don't want to be close to the Shekinah of Hashem because they cannot uh, receive that unfiltered light like that. And so there's a level of when you think about when Yeshua, our master, told us that those who don't do the mitzvot and teach other people not to do it, they will be considered least in the kingdom. So there, there is room for that, like where people go, yeah, I'm not doing this Torah thing. I'm not doing this oral Torah thing. That is not for me. However... The fact that they know there's a God, the fact that they know that they need to do things that are appropriate, you know, and things like that, that's beautiful. You know, if a person can at least get to that place, you know, that's that's really cool. And I think that gets lost in the whole Noahide talk because 
it is just so distracting. But people should be aware that, okay, what's your measure? You know, what measure of faith did Hashem call you to? Because if you don't want to be close to him, it's not like he's going to run around and be like, how come you're not close to me? You know, I mean, that is a question. How come you're not close to him? But he's not going to like force you. He's the gentleman, you know. So anyway, just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Um, the other aspect to that would be if you become aware of not just the written for but the oral as well, then the level of accountability goes up. Mm. Because there are two aspects to this. Number one is we're account all accountable to someone in our lives. True. There are those who are accountable to you as the more at uh Yushenu, right? Because you got people coming to you asking you questions that you need to be prepared to have answers for them. As okay. people come to me with questions, I gotta be able to answer them. This is what Peter says. Be prepared to have an answer for those who ask of you of the hope that lies within. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and but ultimately, we adhere to the rulings of the sages. Exactly. We're like the stewards. Here's the other thing, though. After reading this, the sages are accountable to Hashem. Wow. But so therefore, if you have a problem with the sages, you know, it's just kind of like... You have a problem with Hashem. Take it up with him and see what yeah. he says to him. <laughs> I'm being blunt in that statement because you have those who go to a hyper-literal interpretation of Torah. When in Parashat Shoftim, Moshe gave instructions that you... And he's basically repeating Exodus 19, what Yuto told him. Yep. That you shall appoint judges. You know, why is the most oft-remembered verse in the Bible, judge not, and you won't be judged, and the least memorable, appoint judges? Hmm. Um, again, this all this stuff falls under the umbrella of legalism or what they say is legalism yeah those who don't have a proper understanding of this word and its application that's what the whole thing is that's the crux of the whole argument yeah lack of understanding if, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves about this then the progress we will make and Torah observance cannot be measured. It is priceless. The problem that we face is those who are blind to this. But then the Holy One, blessed be He, has decreed that it is not their time to see. Just like it was, there was a time that you and I could not see. Right. Once that time came and we had a level of spiritual maturity, then we were able to take it in, to internalize it, just as Bill Bear points out here in these paragraphs I read from the book on the month of Adar. 
because this is a very transformational month. We're moving out of winter. It's doldrums. It's staying inside. You know, we don't take the dog for a walk. We don't go to the park. You know, we're introverted. We spend more time with the family, you know, but there's that yearning, that desire to go out mm -hmm. and do the things that we normally do during when the weather is good. You know, it's warm, you know, hop in the car, go for a road trip, you know, that kind of thing, you know. But we want to show our essence. We, we want to show people who we are. Meaning who we really are in Hashem. You know, what, what he's molding us into. And it's a constant work. We are his workmanship, you know. And it's ongoing. It, there's not, it's not going to come to an end. Nope. And that that again brings up your point, you know, the the ends justifies the means speech. Okay, you've walked up to the altar, you've asked Jesus into your heart, that's it. The end. Oh, I don't have to do anything more. Well, you got to pay insurance on your car, you got to get the oil change, you got to get a new air filter. I mean, there's a schedule, you know. Or how about this one? This is a big one for us. Shabbat is next week. <laughs> it's like, Shabbat we just finished Shabbat. Shabbat's in two days. Man. And we just did the last one. Yeah, I know what I'm saying. But like when you when you do Havdalah, you're like, great, I did Shabbat. It's Havdalah. I've done Havdalah. Welcome back to the week. And you're like, and Shabbat's next week. This year is it's Wednesday already. And it's like, oh, two days, man. <laughs> <laughs> dude you're just like okay so the end does not mean stop <laughs> no. fulfilled doesn't mean bring to an end because it's ongoing the cycles <laughs> every single day yeah. week month yeah. year it's yeah. ongoing and this includes the, and the mitzvah performance is inclusive in all this how about what is the end of the day the end of the day is the beginning of a new day. <laughs> the end of the week, the end Just of the when month. you recite the bedtime shema, oh, it's time to say Moday Ani Lefaneka I'm just like, can we get more space between that, please? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you know what they say is psychologically the the that you think about when you wake up was the last thing you thought about. Before you yeah. get to bed, and what better thing than the Shema? Right? Shema when you go to sleep, Shema when you wake up. Because the sages say, uh, yeah, what is there a 20B? It will guard you from impurity at night. Yeah. You know, it's. Um, what do you see? So, the next paragraph. So we know legalism does not spring from the Torah, but rather an attitude about it. So on the other hand, when one is complacent, and we see a lot of this apathy, complacency, this is a breeding ground for excuses. 
We mm. all have them. Um, so because a person doesn't really know what they're aimed at, it just becomes kind of like, eh. Like um, the cycle that we just talked about. Because I, uh, I've been trying to share with people we're in the end of days, you know, and like, I think people are already realizing that without me having to say that. But when I'm telling them this, I'm like, understand what Kate's Yamin means. When we say end of days, this is a transitional period for reality as we know it. What is what is ahead of us and what is in the future? Like it's going to be beyond our wildest dreams, pun intended, because it it is we're going to be like dreamers. So the end of days is like the end of time as we know it, but we're moving into something else. And so when you think about that, there's a trajectory there. There's a, I don't have the luxury now to like, just give up to care, to uh, be nonchalant, you know, and all these kinds of things. It's like, I can't afford to be complacent now. I know what my mission is. I know what the goal is. I know what the purpose is. And I'm like, let's do this. Like it, it literally makes you more fired up because like, you know, what's ahead as opposed to going, well, it's the end. Might as well just do whatever I want to do or just let people just jump off cliffs. You're just like, that's complacency. That's not understanding what, where we're headed. <laughs> oh boy. You just, <laughs> you just brought that up. Oh, <laughs> I just thought of John chapter 10 when they brought the women caught in adultery to the Pharisee. And the master's looking for qualified witnesses. Mm. And it's like he's saying, but not explicitly, why didn't you stop her if you were standing there? If you saw this happening, why didn't you stop her? Because in Vayikra 19, you shall not stand idly by while the blood of your brother is shed. That's Cain slaying heavily. Am I my brother's keeper? We are. What happened to looking out for one another? Or are you guys just too interested in condemning the master, trying to trap him in his words? Oh my gosh. Stumbling block for the ages right there. It's like, oh, so you, this is the Mashiach? This is, okay, I want, I want to test him. I want to test him. By using your fellow's sin as a, like, spring pad, you know, <laughs> really? That's how you want to figure out if this is the Mashiach or not? Okay, so in Matthew chapter 3, when he was being tested, and the Satan puts him on the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself down and the angels will catch you. And Yeshua, bam, just comes right back with, you shall not put Hashem your God to the test. <laughs> right. Because my response to that would have been like, man, why are you trying to kill me? They're like, 
oh, don't worry. Your precious angels will save you. It's like, bro, you want me to put my life at risk to prove a point that you want solved? Like, seriously, is that the way this is going down? <laughs> and this is why I'm not the Mashiach. <laughs> and what's interesting is it brings up another point of people asking. I've heard this statement so many times, and I know you have too. Oh, I'm praying to know the will of God. What God wants for my life. And what you should probably do is... Those who never say yes to the Almighty's commands can never truly expect to know His will. read something along the lines of a humash? You want to know His will, read the first five books of your Bible. Or yeah. we'll get you a humash. <laughs> yeah. Tell you what, man. You just hit it there when you pick that up. Ashrainu Matovka Kainu, my name Bego Alenu. Ashrainu Matovka Kainu, my name Bego Alenu. Bro, oh, we're so blessed. <laughs> so blessed. May the whole world be blessed like this. We don't need to keep it for ourselves. You know, when I was first in the church, one of my prayers was, how can I reach the Jewish people? Now, it's the reverse. How can I get my brothers and sisters in the church to see Mashiach through the lens of the Torah? <laughs> oh, irony at its finest. I'm trying to save you. No, I'm trying to save you. <laughs> I'm trying to get you to do Teshuvah to come back. <laughs> oh my but you need to know JC. It's like, but you need to know JC. We have a name for what's wrong. <laughs> my goodness. On the other hand, when one is complacent about the things that define another, the Torah the Binds the righteousness of Hashem, it is his self revelation that leads to pride and legalism. That's why we have all these religions. This is why we have upteen numbers of denominations within Christendom. Because one person gets offended by what says, okay, I'm just going to stop my own thing my own denomination, if you will. And you get further and further and further away from the Torah and Hashem. Wow. Pretty soon you'll find yourself in a place where you won't recognize the true light. Wow. That's sad. But it's my prayer that you don't get to that point, though. Honestly, seriously, I don't want anyone to be there. Because, of, you know, Hashem loves us that much that he doesn't want that to happen, you know. He will rather bring blessing than judgment. 
Yeah. He'd rather us cry out to him and trust him, you know, instead of leaning on our own strength, you know. Because when we come to the end of ourselves, that's where we find him. I mean, it's a new beginning. So the end is not, it's not done. Like, it just goes on. I just had a mystical moment. (laughs) The tool, self-nullification. So, so Breslev, huh? The whole thing about the Zadik being the gravitational pull to Hashem. And the more you nullify yourself, you make yourself lighter so that gravity can have a stronger effect on pulling you. Are you serious right now? Speaking of gravity, our master walking on water, gravitational defiance. Because he's a Zadik. He doesn't weigh anything. Master Ben may come walking on the water to you. Come on. <laughs> oh, okay. That, that's just Yom Suf written all over it. That's right. just like, oh boy. <laughs> I didn't even think to take my meditation. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, ironically, those who claim they are above the law. That they no longer need it. Are those most likely to suffer from legalism? Well, well, well. Proverbs 6 23, there are six things that Hashem hates, yea, seven are Toiva. Prideful look. Well, yeah, I turned up rumination and I am stuck on divine eyes. <laughs> oh boy, did you send me that excerpt? Uh, because I don't remember seeing divine eyes in the Rav Pinson, uh, that you shared with me in the chat. Uh, I I shared that in the group in strictly Torah, but you know I wanted to share it with you, kind of spark some thought. Okay, directly because you know how we spin the dreidel from above. Yeah, and then the grogger, and then the grogger, we spin it from below. Right. I, that was so profound, man. I just love that. That was good. <laughs> man. No, I need to out of town, man. So that, that was just. <laughs> yeah, can you send me that excerpt there, though? The part about the divine eyes? The old Torah or Purim? I love this little app I have on my Mac. It's called Text Sniper. I can grab any text. 
<laughs> Tech sniper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to just go go to town with puns. Like divine eyes. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, with false humility, they claim that all is required by the law has been met in their lives. The same problem. Well, I really hope exile's over. So I'm ready to go home, I'm ready to be done with this, and I'm ready to tour study all day, all day. <laughs> yeah. Because that's where we were put in the first place, you know. See, that's the other thing is, um, you know, this whole rapture thing. Is, you know, you got yeah. Um, other rumination. The plagues of Exodus are instructive, but what's missing is a rapture. Yeah, I, I almost like just unloaded on somebody about how oh. the rapture's inappropriate. But like unloaded in the sense of here's a uh, here's the context, here's the framework. And here's why, you know, if you're going along the theology of rapture, like that that kind of thing. And I didn't want to do that. And I, I ended up encouraging them that you could, if you're, if you're a person who's really like attached to the idea of a rapture, right? Well, you can actually look at that in principle and in concept as things are playing out to kind of help you because... At some point, that's where people, that's where people are, you know, like, that's what they know. That's what they're like, it's ingrained, like they got it, you know, as opposed to being like, well, it's actually the ones who are left behind and enduring to the end is really what you want to be. <laughs> like, it's, it's harder to get a person to there than it is to go, okay, let's work with what you got. And I ended up just kind of going, okay, let's, can we just do this real quick? So because of that, there is actually a source that says when a person studies the Torah, that they're considered to be caught up in divine rapture. So when you look at a person who's just like, I feel like the rapture is going to happen. And you're just like, Bezrat Hashem, that the whole world will be caught up in studying the Torah. And I know that that doesn't really like fit the bill for what they're doing, but to some extent, we're dealing with scrambled languages, scrambled thought, scrambled ideologies, that there are people who are desirous and understanding that there is something bigger than life going on, but the only way they know how to put it is rapture. And so... For us 
who know, okay, I used to think like that and now I don't. Like, what's the difference between that? You know, like we have this beautiful ability to to be in it, but not of it at the same time where we don't have to go like, well, you're wrong. And let me tell you why. And this is what you need to believe. But we can really come alongside them and be like, okay, I, I get it. You think rapture. That's kind of connected, kind of not. But, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I saw it, you know, like from a person firsthand experience. And then they were sharing videos with me about people going, I think the rapture is going to happen. I just feel it. And even in the video, bro, like this was on TikTok, a person just kind of sharing their heart. They said, because when I'm taken, I'm going to leave behind guides and uh, little packages for people so that they know how to endure to the end. I said, wait a minute. So you are confessing that it's really about enduring to the end. Those are the ones who will be saved. Because remember when... <laughs> When Admore Yeshua said that, mm -hmm. unless the days would be cut short, who could be saved, right? Oh, yeah. But then I remember there's that Midrash that says that um, goodness, all of Israel were considered dead when they arrived at Sinai, but then when the Torah was given, they were resurrected. Yeah. So, see, I mean, even if you put it that way, but then what does Shaul say in Ephesians 2? You who were dead in trespasses and sins have now been brought near by the blood of Mashiach. It's a grace of Mashiach. been raised with him and to sit with him in heavenly places. Come on. And to even go ridiculously further, uh, who is this rabbi? Uh, I sent his video out last night on Strictly Torah because shouts out to Shauna, man. She live and be well. Uh, this guy is insane. What is his name? Rabbi. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, I saw Hebra... that. Huh? I saw that. I, I need to watch it. <laughs> yeah, th this Hebra Rav Moshe Chaim. So Rabbi Moshe Chaim Eid of Yeshiva Eish HaTorah, that guy, may he live and be well. He said that Adar, Adar, is Esav's month. And it's basically Esav's Elul. Get out of here, bro. Because what is happening right now in Esau's world? Lent. And what is uh, what documents are that? Is the Vatican releasing that you mentioned earlier? Oh my gosh. Holocaust documents. Bro, like there the so again, rapture, like dead considered dead in their trespasses we got to the mountain we were dead the tour is like how are you gonna give me the dead people it's like oh yeah i should probably wake them up uh 
that's going on right now. So even if people want to go the route of rapture and be like, I need to get taken, I need to, it's just like, okay, well, that's really not how to do it. But I guess if you need a that route of repentance, then by all means. But bro, just when you think <laughs> it's just like, come on, Hashem, Hashem's like, I'll do you one better. <laughs> I feel my like that is so beautiful. And I'm just like, from the Ephesians chapter two, I'm like, oh my goodness, man, this is like crazy. That goes with the Midrash. Before it complained. You used to be dead because of your sins and acts of disobedience. You walked in the ways of the Olam Haze and obeyed the ruler of the powers of the air who is still at work disobedience. Indeed, we all once lived this way. We followed the passions of our own nature and obeyed the wishes of nature and our own thoughts. In our natural condition, we were headed for God's wrath, just like everyone else. But God who is so rich in mercy, rocking me. And loves us, Ahavas Israel, with such intense love. Prayer, Ahavas that even when we were dead because of our acts of disobedience, it's coming out of Mitzrayim. <laughs> he brought us. Under the hoopah at Harsh Sinai, the, the club is the hoopah. I always have this image in my head every single time, all the time. He's wooing us back to him. This is Geulah, the wedding feast. The bride is making herself ready. I mean, this, oh my goodness. <laughs> You brought us to life along with the Messiah. It is by grace that you have been delivered. That is, God raised us up with the Messiah Yeshua and seated us with him in heaven in order to exhibit in the ages to come how infinitely rich is his grace, how great is his kindness toward us who are united with the Messiah Yeshua. For you have been delivered by grace through custom. And even this is not your own, not your accomplishment, but God's gift. You're not delivered by your own actions. Therefore, no one should boast. For we are of God's making, created in union with the Messiah Yeshua for a life of good actions already prepared by God for us to do. Therefore, remember your former state, you Gentiles by birth, Followed the uncircumcised by those who merely, because of an operation on their flesh, are called the circumcised. At that time had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants embodying God's promise. You were in this world without hope, without God. But now, you, who were once far off, have been brought near through the shedding of the Messiah's blood, for he himself is our shalom. 
he has made us both one and has broken down the Makitsa, which divided us, by destroying in his own body the enmity occasioned by the Torah. With his command set forth in the form of ordinances, he did this in order to create a union with himself from the two groups, a single new humanity, and thus make shalom, in order to reconcile to God both in a single body by being executed on a stake as a criminal, and thus in himself killing that enemy. That's the planks of the Mishkan, by the way, to connect it to the Parsha. Because it talks about why why the planks are called Shatim. Because they grow in a bent fashion. And the the way that uh, we want to or we would be led to be bent towards foolishness and carried away by our own desires. Hashem uses that same tool to bend us towards holiness. <laughs> so in other words, destroying within his body, the enmity, making a new humanity, doing all this through the stake. The stake. That's why we have the, the stakes around the Mishkan is that all around Hashem's presence is this this place of where people have like diverted from him and through that diversion hashem is calling them to him so you were once dead but you're now being made alive and my Except god acceptance of the torah at sinai as don't bear explained here is the raising up in Mashiach to sit in heavenly places yeah People are being brought to yeah. Hashem right now, man. Yeah, and people are stopping their, their, like they're shutting down their school activities and being like, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna focus on Hashem, like we know how. And as Rabbi Hajiyaf, the writer of the future, the book, the Mashiach book called "The Future," which is amazing, if anybody can get it. May he live and be well. He said that we don't have a monopoly on Hashem. But we do have a monopoly on Torah and Mitzvot. So, I mean, if you just think about that for a second, you know, like, what is our role to be the Torah and the Mitzvot in the world? And then the world themselves can come find Hashem. So, what you just read is coming to truth, like, so hard right now because people are just waking up, bro. And it's like, seriously, those who were once dead are now being made alive. <laughs> See, the one thing about this chapter that there's a lot of messianics who make the mistake of thinking that there are two peoples of God. Yep. Yep. And there shows very clear here there isn't. It's just the one new man. But within the structure of the covenants of embodying God's promises. Yeah. Yep. Because all the covenants, none of the covenants are done away with. They're built on one another. Each each covenant that Hashem makes reveals in progression deeper truths about who he is. 
like when even when Adam and Hava were put out of the garden, yet still Hashem in his mercy says, I'll put enmity between your seed and that of the Nakash. Because through your seed, Mashiach's going to come and do exactly what Shaul has described here in Ephesians 2. Yep. After the flood, not that Hashem needs reminders, but more for us, for our sake. So that when we see it, we know. Yeah, so he has Braca for it. Yeah, he's never going to do that again. And then the covenant of the pieces with Abraham. And then we come to Moshe, who actually received the Torah. But our level of understanding really did not increase until, and this, and this is the probably one of the deepest connections occurring with the sages that probably can be expounded on, is that during this time is when the sages began to codify, so to speak, yeah, in an oral way, all the all the halakha. Yeah, they yeah. even called uh, Mordecai the first rabbi. There's yeah. a source on that. <laughs> the still bear does talk about that, you know. And I thought this is it's it's historical, you know. You know, this is stuff that actually happened. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, I mean, what's interesting, he goes on to say, you know, uh, within the written Torah itself, there are elements of Torah Shabbat Peh. For instance, the first revealing of Torah Shabbat Peh is the Parsha, or Torah portion of Yitro, in which Moshe's father-in-law, a person outside of Kalal Yisrael, came around the time of Matan Torah, Either before or after, uh, Zevakim 116a, uh, Zohar, uh, Volume 2, 67b, and 68a. Uh, and with his own intuition and intellectual understanding, suggested a system of courts to Moshe, which was accepted and became part of the Torah. In fact, he is called Yitro, uh, Rashi and Shemot 18.1. Because he, Yesher, adds a Parsha to the Torah. The four letters of Yitro's name are Resh, Vav, Tav, which are the same letters in the name of the other famous convert, Ruth. Mm -hmm. A numerical value, Ruth, equals 606, and with the addition of seven, for the seven uh, Nochide laws, they equal 613, the number of mitzvot in the Torah. 606 is also the value of the filling letters of Adonai. Sha'arahap Hesukim on Esther. The concealing name Adonai is connected to Purim as explored and connected to Torah Shebaal Peh. Equal to is a convert and thus intricately connected with Torah Shebaal Peh. Um, 
<laughs> Can't get enough. See of the that. see the episode on um, the inner dimension of uh, Yitro, uh, Rabbi Ginsburg. Because what happens is when one thing is revealed, another thing is concealed. The written part of Torah, which is fixed and predefined, does not lend itself to human involvement. However, it was given to us along with the task of expounding it and expanding upon its fixed principles. This is the oral aspect of the Torah which is constantly being developed, creatively applied and made relevant anew by us, below Yisrael, below. This really speaks of the arousal from below. Again, this is love. When love inspires obedience, how could it be legalism? Using our intellectual abilities, we are tasked to be uh, Mekadesh, one who unveils and initiates new insights of Torah in accordance with the principles of Torah uh, pedagogy. Purim was therefore, Purim was therefore when we, the below, finally became a full partner and collaborator in the development and articulation of the Torah that was revealed to us from above. In fact, Purim itself is one of the innovations that were meant to be initiated years after Matan Torah. Mitzvot that were to be initiated in the future, for example, the reading of the Megillah, Shavuot 39a, and what the scribes were destined to innovate in the future. And what is it? The reading of the Megillah in Megillah 19b. So with false humility, they claim that all is required by the law has been met in their lives, so they may live the way they want. So they've heard the term hyper-grace. And this is not love. This doesn't demonstrate love for Hashem at all. And this is not evidence of grace. Because if you maintain that argument as on shaky ground as it is, then explain to me the flood. Explain to you the what? The flood, the Mabu. Oh, yeah. yeah. Shem says the end of all flesh. Miketz ha-basar and kol ha-basar. The end of all flesh has come before me. But yet, there are eight people still alive. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then from those eight people, Hashem created a new world. That's basically what it was afterwards. Just another point that the end does not mean it's over. So, speaking of over, not that I like this, but uh, we do need to kind of find a landing point for the rumination discussion. So, how can we best sum up this episode? What is it that we should come away with? 
I think the master's words are succinct. Sum it up. If you love me, keep my mitzvah. Amen. Mashiach now.